So I haven't seen you at the women's Bible study this fall. It's been great. Where you been? Taking a break. I'm trying something new. You mean like a different Bible study? Not exactly. And this may sound crazy, but I've been getting together with a group of women in my neighborhood. So do you live near a lot of women from church? Not that I know of, but I've been getting to know some of my neighbors better and I just want to kind of grow some of these relationships instead of just waving hi when I get in the car in the morning, you know? Oh, well, that sounds good, but what does that look like? Right, I don't totally know. We have been getting together and we realize that there are some issues that we all really care about, like especially uh, education for women and girls. Sheila, my neighbor, she is really passionate about schools in the developing world. And this other woman is on the town education board. And you know, I went to Kenya a couple of years ago on that mission trip to the orphanage for girls. And I don't know, I don't know. We meet again on Friday. But, but what does your group do? I don't know yet, and I guess that that's the crazy part, but I just, I really wanna share God's love with these women, and I know that the things that they're passionate about are closer to his heart than they may realize. Yes, but if you wanna share your faith, why not invite them to the Bible study the church already does, or, or to the women's event that's coming up next month? I don't think they would come. Uh, Sunday service. Too intimidating. Oh, Friday night worship sing. No. Christmas Eve. Look, okay, okay, fine. I'm not saying that I'm not gonna invite them to any of those things. I just feel like God is leading me towards this particular issue. And I'm really hoping that, you know, he has something in mind and, and it's something that's bigger than all of us. I don't know, maybe my neighbors will meet Jesus along the way. But I don't understand why you can't come to Bible study. That's on Thursday and your neighbor thing is on Friday. This kid's schedule and work, that's not really it, honestly. I, I want to make myself available to this new thing. And actually, I was wondering if you might join me. Me? Mm-hmm. Um, no, I don't think I'd be very good at that. <laughs> what are you talking about? All you would have to do is come and hang out. And you already know some of my neighbors. Marissa, who lives next door. I can't. I'm already committed to the Bible study. I, I volunteer for the, for the um, missions committee and kids' church. Exactly. This would be something that's different for you, too. I promise I'm not going to make you wear a name tag with the word church friend written on it. But I like all the opportunities our church provides for, for me to grow and, and serve. And I want to strengthen my faith. There's nothing wrong with that, is there? No, I never said and that. I invite my neighbors and my friends to church once in a while, but education, politics? I, I, I don't know, that seems to be way over my head. And do you really think that's something that will lead these women to the Lord? I don't know. Honestly, it's over my head too. But I want to see the gospel change things in the real world, and I want my neighbors to see that too. I'm nervous, <laughs> but I think it's the right kind of nervous. Could it be that church sometimes gets in the way of mission?
Is it possible that our church activities, our church services, even our church relationships sometimes actually hinder us from fulfilling God's call on our lives and on our church? Now, for some time now, we've been exploring together God's call to mission, to go with Jesus into the everyday places of our lives, school, work, neighborhood, to do good and to point people towards Christ. We've talked about this missional shift from a a come-and-see style of ministry to a go-and-do style of ministry. We've talked about finding our go, our unique contribution to God's work in the world. It all sounds exciting and strategic and relevant to the times in which we live. But the truth is, it's a lot easier to talk about these things than it is to actually do them. Because doing them, moving into some new ways of expressing our faith and our mission, could mean leaving behind some of the familiar ways we have of doing church and living out our faith. And that leads us to the seven last words of the church. Anybody know what they are? We've never done it that way before. (laughs) I count them, there's seven. Anybody ever heard that around the church? Anybody ever said that in church? We've never done it that way before. Well, the drama we just watched brings to the surface some of the fears and concerns and questions we have about embracing this new approach to life and mission. One of these women is feeling a call from God to get more involved with some women from her community. She's not sure where it's going to lead, and she's a little bit nervous about it. Her church friend is more than a little nervous about it. She has some real concerns about this direction. What about discipleship and fellowship? Don't we need Bible study and and time together to grow in our faith? And what if we become so involved with people who are far from God that that they begin influencing us more than we are influencing them? And education and and justice for women and girls, are, are these really, are these things part of our mission? Aren't we supposed to be leading people to Christ? I mean, what, what do we know about pursuing those kinds of things anyway? What if we get in over our heads? And besides, these things have some political baggage to them. Besides, the church is already doing so many wonderful things already. Why can't we just invite people to what's already happening? These are all very real questions, and chances are you've asked some of them. If not out loud, then you've asked them to yourself as we've considered this, this call, this missional shift in our life and ministry. So let's drop in on a conversation Jesus had with some of the folks of his day, because it turns out the questions we're asking are not really new questions. People were asking these same questions of Jesus when he spoke about these kinds of things. And one of these conversations is recorded in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. So before we get to that, we just do need to give a couple of quick shout-outs, okay? First one to Grace Chapel Foxborough. If you remember, they uh, launched, they had their grand opening last Sunday, and as things turned out, they had standing room only there for that service. Over 300 people <laughs> gathered for worship. So that was good news. And then another nearly 100 uh, children and students gathered in the gym for their experience as well. So they had a great day. So we just want to say thank you to the core group there and the launch team for getting off to a great start. And we want to say welcome back to any of you who might be coming back after visiting last Sunday. And secondly, we want to say happy anniversary to our oldest Grace Chapel campus. 
It's not Lexington, and it's not Wilmington. It turns out the, the campus formerly known as the Community Church of Watertown turns 100 years old this fall. In 1917, that is good news. 1917, a group of families came together to, in West Watertown there to form a, a non-denominational gospel-preaching church. And 100 years later, that church is still there. In fact, yesterday, they threw a harvest party for the neighborhood and had over 1,000 people drop by to check out what's happening there in Watertown. So well done, Grace Chapel, Watertown. So all this to say, there's lots to be excited about as a church, lots to be thankful for, but also a lot to think about and a few things to wrestle with as we consider this call from God to go and do, to move beyond the walls of the church. So let's catch up with Jesus and the 12 here for what I'm going to call an uncomfortable day at church. Okay, Mark chapter 3. We'll kind of walk through this little story and then we'll try to pull out a few insights at the end. Mark 3, beginning at verse 1. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Now, we need to back up a little bit to appreciate what's happening here. In this section of Mark's gospel, he actually gives us a series of incidents leading up to this one. This one's the culmination of four different conversations. They begin back in chapter 2 with the call of Matthew, the tax collector, and the dinner party that takes place afterwards. And if you remember, most of the guests at that dinner party were Matthew's crooked tax-collecting cronies. And some of the fine religious people of the day, especially the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, were troubled that Jesus and his followers would be associating with such irreligious, unsavory characters. In the second incident, some people who are curious about Jesus are asking why his disciples don't fast the way John the, disciples, uh, disciples fast, John the Baptist's disciples fast and the way the Pharisees fast. In that culture, in that day, fasting was a primary way that people expressed their devotion to God. It was as familiar and comfortable to them as daily Bible reading is to us today. And so they were suspicious of, of how serious could these Jesus followers be if they don't even fast. In the third incident, the religious leaders challenge Jesus because he allows his disciples to pick kernels of wheat as they walk through a field on the Sabbath. That looks to them an awful lot like work, and that would be a violation of the Sabbath laws. And then we finally come to this event here. So what I want us to see is that Mark has very carefully constructed a narrative here, and it kind of reaches a crescendo with this particular incident that takes place in the Sabbath, on the Sabbath, in the synagogue, with a crowd of people who are suspicious about Jesus and his lack of respect for the forms and cultural religious practices of the day. So the first thing we should notice is that Jesus actually went to the synagogue on a Sabbath morning, which means he was keeping the Sabbath. As he's done all through his life, we see in his childhood and we see it in his adult years, he worships on the Sabbath day. Second thing Mark wants us to notice is that there's a man with a special need in the house that day. Now Mark describes him as a, as a man with a shriveled hand. 
Now, whether this was a birth condition or something that happened later in life as a result of an injury or an illness, we don't know. What we do know is that a condition like this was not only a physical challenge for work and daily life, but it also carried with it all kinds of social and spiritual stigma as well. So this man would have been something of an outsider to the religious community. The third thing Mark calls our attention to is a group of people in, in the service that day who are suspicious of Jesus and his followers. Now, Mark doesn't name them right here, but we know from the earlier stories that they're primarily the, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Now, just a word about Pharisees here. We are conditioned in the church. This is an actual photograph taken from the... No, it's, it's really not, okay? It's just... That's a clip from a movie somewhere, but... We are conditioned in the church to think of Pharisees as the bad guys because we know they would oppose Jesus and, and uh, push towards his crucifixion. But you have to understand, we have to understand that for, for the original livers of this story and the hearers of this story, the Pharisees were the good guys. They were the, the pillars of the church. They were spiritually minded men. men. They, were, they were laymen. They weren't religious professionals, priests and rabbis. They were, they were lay people. Who, who loved the scriptures and, wa and, and wanted to honor God and took seriously his commandments. In other words, they were people a lot like many of us. They took their faith seriously and they wanted other people to take it seriously as well. And like the church friend we met in the drama, these fine religious folk are concerned about the direction that Jesus seems to be taking his followers. So that's the setup here. We have Jesus in the synagogue, we have a man with a need, and we have this group of people suspicious about Jesus' lack of respect for their religious traditions. Well, Jesus is not content to leave well enough alone. He recognizes a teachable moment, and so he decides to stir the pot a little bit. Verse 3. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everyone. So Jesus calls out the man and has him stand up in the center of the room. Now, we don't know if this man was a visitor. If he was, then this was every visitor's worst nightmare, right? Stand up and tell us where you're from. We won't do that to you. But it could be that he was a regular. He's been sitting there week after week after week. Either way, Jesus is making a point here. And the point is that this man, with his need, has been sitting in their midst for this whole service or maybe for a long time, but no one seems to really have noticed him or recognized his need or reached out to him in some way. And so Jesus asks him to stand, not to embarrass him, but, but to call attention to his presence and to his need. Now, it's worth pausing here for just a minute. Because that little incident reminds us that every time we come together, even for a worship service like this on a beautiful fall Sunday, even on a day like this, there are needs and hurts among us. They may not be obvious. This man's need may not have been obvious. He may have kept that hand tucked up into his robe. And on Sundays, we tend to put our Sunday smiles on. But on any given Sunday, there are hurts and needs among us. It might be the person sitting next to you or behind you, the person you shook hands with a few moments ago when we greeted each other. And if we'll just take the time to look around, 
to listen a little more carefully, to notice who's standing by themselves in the lobby, who seems to be a little bit lost as they walk around the building, who might be wiping a tear from their eye during a worship service. Maybe there's an opportunity for us to pray for that person silently, to, to greet them, introduce ourselves, maybe invite them to sit down for a cup of coffee or to join us for worship. The point is, mission begins by noticing people, paying attention. And that can begin even when we're gathered for worship. So Jesus calls attention to this man. So Jesus, I hope you appreciate, Jesus could be a real troublemaker. Okay, we think of a gentle Jesus, meek and mild, not always. He is, he is rattling their cage right now. And he calls this man up in front. And no doubt there were people who were annoyed at what he was doing. I mean, he's interrupting the whole order of worship. This is not the way they do things. The worship leader's looking at his watch, thinking he's got to drop a song now because of all the time Jesus is taking up. And the ushers are wondering if they should come and, and usher this guy out of the service because he's bothering people. Well, then Jesus goes and makes it even more uncomfortable. Verse 4. Then Jesus asked them, which is lawful on the Sabbath? to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. But they remained silent. Now, on the face of it, this seems like a ridiculous question, doesn't it? Like one of those goofy Sunday school questions where the answer is always, Jesus. <laughs> I mean, is it legal to, do, to, to help someone or hurt someone on the Sabbath? Oh, I think it's to hurt someone. The answer seems to be obvious. But as is often the case with religious people, it gets complicated. Because you see, they have these laws about the Sabbath. And healing somebody generally requires some effort. And effort sounds a lot like work. So technically, you're really not allowed to do something like that on the Sabbath. Now, the religious leaders are not entirely heartless here. They were willing to make exceptions. If someone's life was in danger, you could help them. Just enough to keep them alive. But if there wasn't a life-threatening situation, then it was just supposed to wait until the next day. And so you can imagine someone tapping Jesus and saying, if you want to heal somebody, call the church office between 9 and 5 tomorrow and schedule a room, and then you can go ahead. That's how we do things around here. This man's life wasn't in danger. Jesus could have waited the next day, but he didn't. He challenges their tightly defined system. Notice he doesn't just ask if it's legal to save a life on the Sabbath. He asks, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Well, doing good sounds awfully vague. I mean, that's open to all kinds of interpretations. Everybody has their own idea of what good is. Who's going to make these kinds of decisions? Who's going to enforce this kind of thing? And so the whole thing made these fine religious people very, very uncomfortable. And so they refused to answer. They couldn't even bring themselves to say it's legal to do good on the Sabbath. Now, if that bothers you, if it bothers you that people of faith could be so blind and so cowardly, it bothered Jesus too. Look at verse 5. He looked around them in anger 
and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely healed. Now, last week, we imagined how good it must have felt to have Jesus smile at you. Well, now we have to imagine how awful it must have felt to have Jesus angry with you, to have him troubled with you or with us. He's troubled by their stubborn heart. Stubborn means hard-hearted. They were not only blind to this man's need, they were blind to their own callousness and their own lack of compassion. Stretch out your hand, Jesus says to the man. What? Stretch out your hand? That hand that this man had always done his best to hide? This hand that other people tried to avoid staring at? Stretch out that hand? Why is Jesus making things so uncomfortable? But when the man does stretch out his hand, it's healed. It's whole. And here's the really cool thing. Jesus hasn't lifted a finger to heal this man, right? He hasn't reached out to touch the man. He hasn't applied medicine or oil. As far as we can tell, Jesus hasn't moved a muscle to heal this man. And so, technically, he hasn't worked at all. Truth is, there's only one person who worked on this day. Who was it? God. God healed on the Sabbath. God is the only one who worked here. And by the way, who came up with the Sabbath idea? God. So if it's okay for God to heal on the Sabbath to do good, then it's probably okay for God's people to do good on the Sabbath as well. This is what the Sabbath is for, Jesus is saying. This is what the synagogue is for. This is what the law is for. It's for people. It's for life. It's for healing and restoration and wholeness. And so for a moment, it looks as though Jesus has rescued this uncomfortable moment and turns it into a wonderful moment. A man's been healed. You can see one of the elders signaling the worship leader, a praise song, a praise song, let's go. but not according to the Pharisees. Verse 6. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So instead of celebrating the miracle and praising the miracle worker, they decide this kind of behavior needs to be stopped. We can't have people doing this kind of thing in worship services on a Sabbath day. And so they begin to plot his murder. Now, don't miss the irony. Remember the question Jesus posed? Is it lawful to save life or to kill? Seemed like a ridiculous question, right? And yet that's exactly what these Pharisees have decided. The most spiritual thing they can do on this Sabbath day is to plot a man's murder. Never underestimate religion's power to lead us in some bad directions. And don't miss this either. The Herodians were a political action group. They were Jews who had aligned themselves with Herod, Herod of all people, because they felt as though it might be advantageous to them, to their people. Now, in any other situation, Pharisees would have nothing to do with Herodians. But in this instance, to pursue their mission, 
they compromise their scruples. And so it's a pretty disturbing ending to a really uncomfortable day at church. So what do we do with this story? What does it have to say about our fears and concerns about going out into the world and doing good in Jesus' name? Let me offer just a few takeaways from this uncomfortable day at church. The first, our mission is people, not church. Our mission is people, not church. Now, I will freely admit that I thought two or three times about actually writing and saying that sentence. Because you know I love church. I love the church. That was one of our main points last Sunday, was that Jesus loves his church. Jesus lives through his church. I've devoted my life to serving and building Christ's church. But Jesus reminds us here that that his mission is to save the world. It's to restore everyone and everything to a right relationship with God. The church just happens to be part of his plan for accomplishing that mission. Now, it's a central part of the plan, but it's a means, not the end. Someone put it this way. It's not that God's church has a mission. It's that God's mission has a church. You see the difference? The church exists for mission, not the other way around. So when church starts getting in the way of mission, when forms and practices and traditions keep us from fulfilling God's call on our lives, and something's wrong. So, when we are so busy with church activities and events and programs that we have no time left to get involved in our community or neighborhood or school or workplace, then it could be that church is getting in the way of our mission. When we have so many church friends in our lives, that there's no room for other friends, it could be that church is getting in the way of mission. When our sermons and our services are so comfortable for believing people that they are uncomfortable or inaccessible for seeking people, then it could be the church is getting in the way of mission. When we are so committed to maintaining our favorite church program that we have no time, energy, or money left to meet people's real needs, then church is getting in the way of mission. Our mission is people, not church. That's an uncomfortable statement to make, not only because I love church, but because these questions make me very uncomfortable as well. A second takeaway. There's more to the gospel than getting to heaven. There's more to the gospel than getting people to heaven. See, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, this man's need was not urgent. His life wasn't in danger. He lived with it for a long time. He could live with it one day longer. So there was no need to disrupt a perfectly good worship service, no need to go stretching the boundaries of, of Sabbath observance to meet a need that wasn't urgent, wasn't life-threatening. 
But that was Jesus' very, very point. That's why he chose this man, knowing he had a non-life-threatening need. That's why when he asked the question, he didn't just say, is it lawful to save life on the Sabbath, but is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? God isn't just interested in holiness. He's interested in wholeness. He wants people to be well and free. He wants human beings to be valued and noticed and cared for and included simply because they're human beings, because they're made in his image, because they're designed for a purpose, because they're destined for eternal glory. He cares about people and about their everyday needs. There's more to the gospel than just getting people to heaven. Pastor Dave reminded us of that a couple of weeks ago. That the gospel is about getting heaven into people. It's about this world being put right. It's about beauty and justice. It's about equality and opportunity. It's about freedom and flourishing for all people everywhere. And so when we give ourselves to these kinds of pursuits, whether it's through the church or whether it's through our working lives or whether it's in our community or our school or our neighborhood or through our hobbies, we are doing good in the world. We're fulfilling our mission. And I'm so glad the church has woken up to this in recent days, recent years, and Richard Stearns of World Vision has certainly helped us to do that. He wrote that uh, best-selling book a few years ago called A Hole in Our Gospel. The premise of the book was that for a long time, the church had something missing from its gospel. We thought it was mostly or even only about getting people into heaven, getting them saved. But he reminds us that the gospel's about more than that. It's about feeding the hungry. It's about sheltering the homeless and housing the orphan and welcoming the refugee. It's about economic empowerment. It's about racial justice. It's about the sanctity of life. It's about seeing people and the world become everything God intended them to be. That's the gospel. And so I'm really excited about something we've had around here for a while, but we want to... Uh, kind of called your attention again, called Grassroots Ministries. Grassroots Ministries are simply initiatives that are conceived and launched by, by folks here at Grace who want to do something good in the world outside the traditional programs of the church. In case someone sees a need, they want to do something good outside the traditional programs of the church. And we just try to give them a platform and help them get started and turn them loose. So we have three of them currently operating. One of them is called Home for Good. And this is a group of people whose mission is to support adoption, foster care, kinship care, families and individuals who are all a part of, of uh, that particular experience of life, Home for Good. LAM, Life Affirming Ministries Boston, helps to support individuals and, and, uh, and promotes the, the sanctity of life in our culture and comes alongside of individuals, families who might be in an unexpected, unplanned, or crisis kind of pregnancy situation. SALTS is a missional community of single adults who come together to support each other and to do something good in the world. Well, this fall, we're introducing two more grassroots ministry. One of them is called STAND, Stop Trafficking and Demand. Its mission is to raise awareness of human trafficking and bring it to an end in our region. They actually have a, an introductory event happening in November on the 18th, a, 
uh, here on the Lexington campus, uh, a movie and a discussion. If you're interested in, in the human trafficking initiative, then you can come learn more about it. A second is called REACH, and its mission is to educate and engage God's people to serve refugees in the greater Boston area. And they're having an introductory event also in November on the 20th in Lexington if you're interested in pursuing and getting involved in that idea. So this is what grassroots ministry is about. God is putting something on your hearts. If you care about some of these things, we'd like to turn you loose. And so our mission is people, not church. There's more to the gospel than getting people to heaven. And then thirdly, New wine demands new wineskins. New wine demands new wineskins. Now, these are, these are words that fell right from the lips of Jesus, and Mark records them for us right in the middle of this sequence of four stories. Jesus says, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. What's he saying? He's simply saying that the gospel, the good news of God, is like new wine. It's bubbling, brimming with life. It's fizzing with ferment. It's so full of transformative bite and energy, it cannot be contained by tired, brittle, worn-out wineskins. He's saying that the, the forms and structures and systems of traditional Judaism were insufficient for containing the transformative power of his gospel, the kingdom of God. That they were, that they were no longer relevant to the new thing that he was doing in the world today. It was true in the first century. It's true also in the 21st century. It's not that the gospel is new. It's that the gospel hasn't changed. The world has changed. Culture has changed. We're facing needs and challenges and opportunities, questions that we've never had to deal with before. And the gospel is up to the task. The gospel is always new, always fresh, always powerful. We just need wineskins that can contain it and carry it and deliver it to those who need it. Now, I know very little about wine or wineskins, I'll tell you that. But I know a thing or two about church. And I have lived long enough to see these wineskins come and go. I remember when evangelistic crusades were the ways to introduce people to Christ, big speakers and big gatherings. And then we shifted to more of a door-to-door -door approach where you went and shared the good news at people's living rooms. And then we shifted to kind of a relational lifestyle evangelism where it was one neighbor to another. And now it's things like alpha groups as we come people together to ask questions about Christian faith. These are all just wineskins. They were effective in their time, but after a while, some of them got old and brittle, and so we went on to new ones. And this happens all the time in the church. Contemporary Christian music, the small group movement, multi-site churches. These are wineskins. How do we contain and, and, and carry the gospel to the world in a, change, to the world in a changing time? So yes, some of our tried and true methods may become brittle and obsolete. 
some of our familiar customs and practices may no longer be relevant and effective. Some of our preferences in music and style and architecture and dress may actually make it harder for some people to find their way to faith. Are we willing to embrace some new ways of communicating God's good news? Are we prepared to let go of some things that might actually be getting in the way? So, our mission is people, not church. There's more to the gospel than getting people to heaven. And new wine demands new wineskins. Sat down for breakfast this morning, and Karen said, so how's the sermon? And I said, it's a little uncomfortable. A little uncomfortable to preach, a little uncomfortable perhaps to hear, a little uncomfortable to process. So if you're feeling a little bit nervous about all of this, if you're not sure where it's all going to lead, if, then that's probably a good thing. That's exactly where Jesus wanted the crowd to be on this uncomfortable day at church. Because, because he was preparing a new thing. And for their sake and the world's sake, he didn't want them to miss that new thing. And he doesn't want us to miss it either. And that's the divine invitation for this week. We are invited to love people, not tradition. To love people, not tradition. Now, hear what I'm saying. You know I love many traditions of the church and of our church, and so we don't jettison all of them. Some are timeless and effective, but others need to need to morph or need to disappear so new ones can come along the way. We are invited to love people, not tradition, to, to taste the new wine of the gospel and then find new ways of sharing it with a world that is as desperate for it as ever. So if you're feeling a little bit nervous about this and where it all might lead, that's probably a good thing. I'm a little nervous about it too. But as the character in our drama said, I think it's a good kind of nervous. I think it's the kind of nervous that leads us closer to Jesus. Let's pray about that. Lord, some of us here today, like the fine religious folk in this story, need to be disturbed. We need to be disturbed by the needs of the world in which we live, maybe some of the people we rub shoulders with every day. We need to be disturbed by our own preference for comfort and familiarity. So I pray, Lord, you might give us the humility to hear what you might be saying to us, the teachability to learn new things, the courage to try new things, and to follow you into new ways of living out our faith. Lord, it could be some of us, like the man in the story, are sitting here with a great need today, a hurt, an ache, a longing. Pray, Lord, that they might know that you are here for them and that we are here for them as well. We are your people, your eyes and ears and hands and feet and arms to welcome and minister and serve. So we pray you might bring to them whatever healing and restoration they might need today. And if we can be part of it, show us how. 
We're grateful, Lord, that the, the gospel's never old, but always new. Pray that you might lead us to discover it and to share it. In Jesus' name, amen.